you yahoos, listen up. This is Sailor Steve Costigan, and you're listening to the Cromcast. That's a podcast. I have no idea what that is, but you're listening to it. Crom. I'm about to open High Life number two. Nice. All right, everybody. I am Luke. Uh, you are listening to the Chromecast. We are in season five. This is episode fourteen, the apparition in the prize ring. This is a this is a, a ghost story for us to talk about here in the midst of our boxing season. Uh, who do we have over there in Nebraska? My name is Jonathan. Who do we have beside me here in Kentucky? I am Joshua. And as I said, I am Luke, and we are your mighty Chromecast hosts. For this episode, like I guess all the episodes, but it's us. Yeah, it's always us. When we use our full names, we sound very biblical. Yoshua, <laughs> messenger of truth. How's it been going, guys? It's been going good, good. dude. Good. Yeah, we're we're uh, transitioning from summer to fall. It seems like the temperatures are coming down, the leaves are coming down. No, bro, you're about to get a heat wave. It got really hot here in Omaha today, so look forward to that tomorrow. Don't tell you me, guys. I did. I did sweat it up on my way back to the, to the to the vehicle across across campus today. But yeah, Josh is right. Schools schools about to be back in session for for a lot of folks, and uh, I'm excited for it. I like I like going back to school in the fall. It's fun. What's the Adam Sandler? Back to back. school. <laughs> Prove to my dad that I'm no fool. <laughs> Yes. It's a good life. It's a good life. It's a high life. It's a oh, speaking of, oh, look at you, Mr. Segway. Uh, <laughs> what are we drinking? Uh, well, I have uh, a very small uh, seven ounce bottle of Miller High Life, the champagne of beers that I picked up at Kroger just the other night and brought to your house before we played some board games. We had board games with the, with the significant others, with our wives. It was a lot of fun. It was pretty cool. It was cool. Played some code names. Code names is a cool game. I like that game a lot. And then we played. Um, what did we play after that? Oh, uh, Bonanza. That's right. Which is a play on words. We were. We were. We were. We were. Doing sounds the, like the a bean sex counting. Game. <laughs> it's not a sex <laughs> game. We were counting beans. You're you're farming and trading bean shares. That's like, right. It's 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 pretty cool. It's a German game and and uh, it's called Bonanza, but I guess B O H N Bone is German for bean. Man, I I feel like that's a game. It just moves quick, and that's the intention, right? But I don't. Even though by the end I felt like I was wheeling and dealing, I still don't know if I was effectively like trying to like the game ended and we were all fairly close as far as our points. But I don't know if I think you got to be able to really sort of gauge your standing in the game on the fly, like as you're playing, to know whether or not you should trade. Like, it's cool. Yeah, I like it. It's a cool game. Um. So that's what I've got. Looks like you've got one of those too. How about you, John? I'm drinking a uh, sparkling ice lemon lime, which is the champagne of sparkling waters. Yeah. <laughs> is it uh, Lacroix? Uh, no. 
I think the company's name is Sparkling. Oh, cool. I, I didn't know if you were wearing yoga pants and drinking LaCroix. I rock no. some LaCroix, dude. What's LaCroix? L- LaCroix's fine. That's like the, the fashionable uh, seltzer water. But man, like seltzer oh. water is a big thing now. It uh, is. Yeah. Kroger is all about the seltzer water, which I love. I can get a 12 pack of like the, the lemon flavored seltzer water and slam it in a weekend. I'm uh I'm proud to admit that. <laughs> I felt like you were going to say, you want to fight about it? You, what are you going to say about it? I like my lemon <laughs> seltzer water. No, that's fine. And it's zero calories, right? Like it's Yeah. And it's it's refreshing. You gotta I save, just like the bubbles, really. That's yeah. what I'm all about. The fizziness. Yeah. The fizziness. You got to save those calories for Chromecast night. That's right. Saving it up for, <laughs> for high life and a little bit of whiskey. That's right. Uh, so that's what we're drinking. We got into a little bit of game chat there. We got into a little uh, little uh, talk about, you know, a uh, fashionable sort of bubble water culture as it stands. Bubble water. Uh, <laughs> let's go ahead and do the one thing. John was rocking the keyboards over there. I saw him over in Nebraska. He was like, he was on it. It was my keytar. I just <laughs> held it up sort of so you could see it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to put you on the spot, John. What's your one thing? My one thing is, I think I did a comic book in the last episode. I'm going to do another comic book. There was, or maybe it's still going on, a series from ID or from Dynamite that is the new Shaft comic book written by David Walker. I can't remember who does the art, but I started that today. And was super impressed. Very noir very Pulp Fiction-y. It's got boxing in it. John Shaft starts as a boxer in the comic book. So it kind of fits with our season. And it was just, it was something I didn't know I wanted until I read it. And then I was like, this is everything for me today. So I'm, I'm pretty into it. You should check it out. Sweet. What's the art look like? Very, uh, do you know Declan Shelby? I love me some Declan Shelby. It's it's sort of adjacent to that I I'd say. Nice. That's good yeah. stuff, man. Yeah, I like I like his look. That I mean, he's he's part of that uh strong contrast kind of like like heavy heavy lines, I don't know, like like pretty like the the characters seem to pop. At least I think about like his line art. Yeah. <laughs> sort of a, <laughs> uh, school, right? How how did you describe it? The like the Samney school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. The <laughs> artist is Bliquis Evely. Cool. Yeah. I'm googling this as we as we speak. So chickety check it. <laughs> Who's the comic character starting out as boxer? Jeff. Damn right. That's awesome. Uh, what do you got over there, Josh? As far as your one thing, I'm I've been. My headspace has been firmly in the 8 to 16-bit realm of video games recently. As a result of that, I've been looking for podcasts that cover uh, games from my youth, video games. And I found one on the Geek Nerdery Podcasting Network. This is a podcast called Graveyard Duck. And the title is kind of maybe nebulous or or weird sounding, but... uh, if you've ever played Castlevania two, then you know that at some point in the game, a villager tells you get a sack from the graveyard duck to extend your life. Hmm. Um, and so that's where they get their name, their podcast name from. So that's pretty rad. Uh, 
that statement is probably a punctuation error. Get a sack from the graveyard, comma, duck to save your life. Oh. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> anyway, they're the Graveyard Duck <laughs> podcast. They've been going at it uh, for a few months now. And they've talked about such uh, as eight, eight and 16-bit games as Castlevania II, uh, The Legend of Zelda, Link to the Past, Splatterhouse, um, and just all these games that uh, sort of make me remember going to the movie store when I was a kid and renting a video game and playing it for the weekend and, and taking it back and, you know, uh, renting it again the next time and finding out, Oh, my save game is here, you know, like, nice. Yeah. So, uh, it, it hits all the nostalgia buttons uh, for me. So if you grew up playing these, uh, Nintendo and Sega games and you want to hear some, some folks talk about those games in, in a very loving and nostalgic way, Check out Graveyard Duck, and we will post a link in the show notes. Cool. My one thing. Round us out there, boss. My one thing it is, uh, I had one one thing, and I mentioned this before we started recording. It got usurped by another one thing. Uh, midday today, I was <laughs> surfing through the band the band camp. Uh, never, never mind. Never fear about the the first one thing. It'll come back the next episode, I'm sure, because it's a TV show and I'm not quite through with it, so I'm sure it'll keep on kicking ass. But but right now, my one thing is uh, the metal band, the metal group, the metal person named Mountain Ear, Mountaineer. Like you're you're gonna go climb a mountain, so you're a mountaineer. Like from West Virginia, right? <laughs> like you're, <laughs> you're from the mountains, uh, and apparently this. Uh, this entity, this this artist, that's how this artist or artist collective uh, released two different albums in July. The first one called As Righteous As Flawed, Volume 1. And then the second one was called Marbled Victory, Volume 2. Uh, and so right now we'll play a, at least a little bit of Heraldry Mistaken, which is the second cut off of the As Righteous As Flawed album. And man, this is this is the bee's knees. So, uh, so how'd you find these guys? I was just, I was just surfing along. I was listening to another band, uh, and I hit the, the tag for new wave of British heavy metal, which is like one of the, one of the tags on the bottom of the Bandcamp page. And this album popped up and I was like, man, that's a, that's a pretty awesome bit of cover art. Cause the, the, the cover art is just killer. It's, it's like something from like the, from the seventies, like a, uh, Oh yeah. This is like Frank Frazetta, like inspired at least yeah it's it's pretty cool it's pretty cool sword and planet yeah that's a, yeah 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 it's <laughs> so as you can tell from just listening to that i mean that's that's very metallica right like that's metallica metal i don't know if you call that like it's like sophisticated thrash right it's like master of puppets injustice for all like speed metal but yeah it's, yeah it's a little neater than just thrash it's got some it's got some super melody and it's still playing here in the background there's not a bit of lyrics this is entirely instrumental and it's it is just ripping and rolling there is like no fat on this album this album and the other album are both uh totally instrumental they're both 
like in the neighborhood of four to seven tracks, like their classic album length, get in, get out, and it is just it's phenomenal. Like I I don't know. I'm wondering if, if like James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich are like, hey man, let's go like write some Metallica songs and put them out under a, a secret name and, and, <laughs> and it'll and be riffing ass and do we, it'll it'll just slay everybody and it'll be it'll be real Metallica and that's what it sounds like to me. It says they hail from Welland, Ontario, Canada. Yeah, so we've got some Canadians that seem to be ripping here. I, I mean, the production value, it makes me wonder if this is like a single person kind of thing, because that's what a lot of metal that you see pop up on Bandcamp is. It's, it's you know, a solo, solo person making stuff in their home studio. Maybe that's what this is. Maybe this is a, a real band. But I did a little bit of Google searching, and I couldn't find anything about these guys, these, these gals, this person... This entity. This, I don't know. Maybe they're from the cosmos. It's like Sword and Planet. Maybe yeah, that's it's, right. Maybe they've come here to, to take us over. Uh, there are overlords. I don't know. I'm loving it. So final note, it's like pay what you want. Yeah. I would suggest paying a buck so you can download it to your phone or whatever. But you can get these albums for free, and they are badass. That's yeah. my thing. What do you think, John? That's what, that's what I thought you would think. So it's just it's riftastic, man. There's some 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 kick-ass drums. If anything to criticize it, maybe I would want to hear the drums like mixed a little bit higher. They're pretty snappy, but it's it's like that uh, that injustice for all uh, Lars on the drums with him Metallica like like just attack like a machine gun going off. Yeah, you sent me this and I had it rocking in the the <laughs> office today. And I dig it. Yeah, it's, it's good. So that's Mountaineer. That's Mountaineer. People check them out. Um, their Bandcamp uh, site is mountaineerslays.bandcamp.com and we will post a link in the show notes so that was three different things pretty wide array of things there you can put them all together one thing solid 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 state dudes dudes <laughs> <laughs> Wait this is the hacker cast dude. solid state i'm your host <laughs> zero cool binary fusion <laughs> slick lizard <laughs> slick lizard <laughs> i don't know where that came from source code source source code is slick lizard i was thinking of snake plissken <laughs> like the uh what is it like what was escape from la or yeah. escape from new york yeah. initially and then What's the, the oh solid snake? I'm thinking of like Metal, Metal Gear Solid mixed with Snake Plissken mixed with the <laughs> 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 All right, guys. So we gotta we gotta get into our content here. This is gonna be an interesting story for us to talk about. It's it's not Sailor Steve. Uh, it is an Ace Jessel story. This is called the Apparition in the Prize Ring. This is a this is a Robert E. Howard story. I have here that it was published in Ghost Stories in April of 29. From my, my little bit of research, it seems like Ghost Stories was a pretty cool uh, competitor of you know weird tales back in the day. They, may, they had the, a shorter run for sure, but just looking over a bit of the cover art, it seems like uh, this was a cool magazine. I've never seen this like for, for purchase anywhere, but I'm, I would love to flip through one of these from, from just looking at the cover art and seeing some of the stories that have been, that were printed here. Um, just in your brief research, did you get a sense for like other 
writers of the time that were published in? Uh, there were some bigger names that were published here, and there were some reprints. I can't actually. I'm I'm spacing offhand coming up with some some people but i do know that a handful of classic ghost stories were were published here maybe like as a second time off but then there were also some subsequent republications of stories that were in ghost stories uh and that's not saying much given that that's happened in world weird tales in any variety of like you know the the genre magazines that we could that we could be talking about but but yeah there were some some more famous non-pulp writers that were showcased within this pulp magazine Cool. So this is a uh, ghostly apparition boxing story. Yeah. So this is kind of cool in that it's it's sort of on the periphery. It's not really a ghost story, right? Like there, there. Well, it is a ghost story, but this is functionally like a sporting pulp kind of story that just happens to have uh, a ghost figuring into the the overall plot, but. But it plays out like a like a like a fight story that we've read from Howard. Otherwise, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and I actually liked the fight scene descriptions in this more than almost any of the other stories we've read so far. Yeah, it's it's given in a more authoritative fashion. Like we're going to get into this as far as the stel- storytelling devices and the point of view for this story versus like the Sailor Steve stories. But this is this is delivered in a more authoritative less like the the narrator is trustworthy and he's not hokey the way that that sailor steve is right like sailor steve it's hard to to get a get a picture of whether or not he's telling the truth a lot of the time mm-hmm. but in this case the way that the story is delivered it's it's more like uh like the dashel hammett my brother's keeper type story like it's like i'm the manager and this is what was happening right definitely yeah and uh i i guess we'll talk about the manager and how he plays into the story as we move along. But this story is famous for being Howard's only depiction, uh, or I shouldn't say only depiction, only story with a black protagonist, like a black main character. Mm-hmm. Now, Nalonga from the Solomon Kane stories, you can make the argument that really he was probably uh, should count instead um, but, uh, no longer was really a, a side character, right? He was, he, he sort of was the, uh, uh, the shaman that showed Solomon Kane the way, right? Less the, the main feature of the story. Uh, in my book, uh, the boxing story is edited by Chris Gruber. He talks about in his introduction about how there is, he talks a lot about sailor Steve in it, but he points out some of the other boxing stories that, that people, uh, may be able to read and points out that this is actually the first published boxing story, the spirit of Tom Molyneux or the apparition in the prize ring as we know it. And it's a, he calls it a curious marriage of ghost and sports story featuring Ace Jessel, an African American boxer with lots of talent and a heart of gold in its touching portrayal of a black heavyweight champion. This story shows a little known side of Howard, his often sympathetic treatment of characters of various races. Yeah, I, and I think that that is an apt description of it. But I think as we get into it, we'll see some some maybe other viewpoints about how race is treated in the story. Yeah, and you know we've talked about race as an element within Howard's writing, and race as as a, a central conversation point within the larger sort of uh, uh, 
pulp arena, especially of like the the twenties and the thirties, that period of time. And no doubt we're going to talk about it again here in this episode to some to some length. So uh, hopefully that's interesting to you. Keep in mind as we've as we've said at length previously. You know you're you're talking or listening to 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 three uh middle-aged or early uh early middle-aged oh. white dudes i mean <laughs> oh God. like like white dudes in their in their 30s you know and so <laughs> and so the the perspectives you're going to get here are ours and hopefully they're hopefully they're useful for for your discussion but but regardless this is a story i think that's deserving to be read by a pretty wide audience uh and and it's it's cool. Like there's, it's cool that it co- crosses over the boundary of the sport versus the ghost story. Uh, that in and of itself makes it interesting. Apart uh, from, you know, any racial elements that you might want to talk about within the story, that to me is like just a cool sort of blending that's going on there. Uh, and you know, there's there's a there's a there's a handful of different topics that we've identified for discussion. But just generally, the plot for this story is pretty. It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty bare bones, but but it bears us just just running through it quickly. So as I mentioned before, we've got a narrator who is uh, the manager for Ace, and Ace is a a great fighter. He doesn't necessarily have that bloodthirsty spirit that other boxers might have, and it seems to be because he's because he's a good dude, right? Yeah, he seems to genuinely have a heart of gold. He is he sort of is clever in his boxing uh, sort of in, in contrast to sailor Steve who we're told over and over again is a hammer that meets rocks. Whereas Ace Jessel seems to be more of a, a thinking man's boxer. He is able to outpoint people and he never goes for the kill. He goes for the win. Right. And so it seems like he does just enough to, to get the win and because he doesn't necessarily want to put anybody in the hospital. Right. Like yeah. He likes the sport of it. Yeah, and it seems like sometimes crowds turn against him, uh, probably because, you know, if you're going to a boxing match and you drink a few beers and get a little drunk, you maybe want to see some blood and you want to see this big guy smash some people's faces in, but that's not really why he's there. He's there for the sport of it, not the, uh, what do I want to say here? Not the... The gladiatorial aspect of it yeah not the spectacle of it he's he's there for the sport yeah uh so so we have ace and ace himself is infatuated with another uh another black boxer of of the previous generation like or actually maybe uh a hundred years like like generations back this is this is like the the paragon of 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 boxers specifically of 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 black boxers within the field. This is the, the dominant figure of that time. And his name is Tom Molyneux. Molyneux. We're going to maybe pronounce it a couple different ways. I think. Yeah. And he's a really interesting historical character. I think there I've mentioned the dollop before on the show is my one thing. And they actually have an episode that's about Tom Molyneux and another, another boxer in England who he fought a couple of times and is really famous for fighting called Tom Cribb. Uh, Molyneux is also known as the Moor, and he it's very interesting that Howard describes him as like the greatest boxer of his generation because he's really famous for losing twice to this Tom Cribb guy and is the opposite of of Ace in some ways. If you read some of the stories about this guy, he 
he had a very maybe sort of self-created legend where he was he was a slave in America, uh, born in, into slavery in Virginia, and was supposedly trained by his father, who was also a fighter, and his twin brother was also trained to be a boxer. And they were they were always pitted against other slaves in order to entertain plantation owners. So we've got some classic Southern slavery boxing, right? I mean, we've heard a lot about that, especially with things like uh, what's the Jamie Foxx movie that came out a few years ago? Oh, Django. Django, things like that. I mean, that's sort of in the public consciousness right, right. now. So Molyneux is good at boxing, not great at boxing, and his his owner arranges for him to be trained by the captain of an English ship because England at the time that this is all happening is sort of the capital of pugilism in the world. Right. Well, Molyneux doesn't take kindly to that and doesn't really listen, and he gets whipped for not listening but still wins the fight that he's in. And this was a big fight. And the owner of him wins $100,000, supposedly, and gives Molyneux $500 and his freedom for winning him all this money. And after that, he heads to, to New York, where he fights a bunch of people in street brawls because there wasn't really boxing, particularly for African folks in America at the time. And he hears about a guy named uh, crib over in England who Tom Cribb is the greatest fighter in the world. And you, if you want to be the best, you got to beat him. So he hops a boat to England essentially. And this is, he shows up in England and starts going bar to bar and proclaiming himself the champion of America and that he is here to whip Tom Cribb essentially. So nobody believes him. He, everybody thinks he's crazy and boxing is not really this open thing. I think we've talked about this on the show before. Uh, it was not a sanctioned thing in England at the time. It was a bit frowned upon. It was called the fancy is what I gather. And the fancy was not smiled upon by the law. So fights were under the table. They were out in the country sort of. But eventually he does come under the tutelage of a guy named Bill Richmond, who is sort of his own whole story, who was a black boxer who served in the the British Army during the Revolutionary War and married a white woman in England and had children with her and used to beat people up for being racially insensitive to him. So kind of an awesome guy in his <laughs> own right. Maybe helped hang Nathan Hale, according to some people, so not completely awesome, but has, has a very interesting story. And he wants to train Molyneux because he hates Tom Cribb. Tom Cribb ended his boxing career, Bill Richmond's. So they train together, and now uh, Molyneux is going to fight Tom Cribb. And I, the fight is at Shinnington Hollow in Oxfordshire. And uh, it was for the English title. Molyneux stood five foot eight and weighed 14 stone and two, so 198 pounds. And Crib didn't expect the fight to last very long, but it ended up going for 35 rounds. Holy there were moly. no round limits at the time. So uh, there was a whole bunch of problems. And eventually Crib wins. And then there's a rematch a year later in 1811 at Thistleton Gap. And this was watched by 15,000 people, apparently, who were there to see this new fight between the two fighters. And it was supposed to be just one of the coolest fights ever and only lasted 11 rounds, but was supposed to be really good. 
there are lots of cool articles about these two men and their fights. There's one on a site called Grantland called A Fighter Abroad, and there's also the the Dollops podcast about it. I I dusted over some of the things that they talk about in these these different articles and podcasts, but a big deal. There's some people who argue this is the birth of modern boxing because Molyneux is sort of this brash, swift-talking, self-aggrandizing hustler of a boxer, right? and Tom Cribb is supposed to be this this gentleman. He dressed very fancy and was a really well-to-do kind of guy and learned. And there's a John or a Bill Richmond, the, the manager who wants to get back in, right? The Mickey of, of the story sort of. And so we see some of these archetypes being born within this tale. It sounds like it's the industry and a lot of the like classic archetypes are all in yeah. this, right? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and so if people are interested, like, can you pick up that episode of the dollop and does that give you the, the whole arc of, of the Molyneux story? It gives you more of the, it, it talks about all three, Bill Richmond, okay. Molyneux and Tom Cribb. And it's about these two fights more than it is their entire lives, okay. but it, it helps you understand them a little bit better. Cool. Uh, well, Ace in our story here, he <laughs> is infatuated with with uh tom like as a as i I used the term before but i think it's apt like he's a paragon he's he's like the he's he's the aspirational figure for ace to the to the point that ace spends a good bit of coin to buy a painting of tom molyneux right and as he as ace is training we get glimpses of him kind of uh in silent uh, meditation almost kind of uh, as though he is communing with the painting of Tom Molyneux. And so why is he training, John? What's what big challenge is Ace Jessel about to take on? Well, in the, in this story, there's another fighter who's named man killer Gomez who has shown up and essentially taken the boxing world by storm and has just whooped everybody that's ever gone against him and has the title, the heavyweight title. Is that correct? I believe so. Yep. Yeah. So this guy, he's, he's unstoppable. He's Mike Tyson in his prime. If we wanted to put it into modern context, this guy is just a boxing machine and he can't be beat. But when you have boxing going on, there has to be matches or otherwise people get kind of angry, but the matches have dried up for man killer Gomez because he's, a man killer and <laughs> eventually the pressure is on for ace to be the one to fight him. Cause ace isn't well known. Ace is, has won a lot. Ace is a popular fighter and it becomes inevitable that these two have to meet. And so he has to train in order to meet this destiny. Why do they call him the man killer? Cause he, he, he kills man. <laughs> I can't do it. He kills he, men. He kills man. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah the so fight john is arranged john set the the stage and the fight is arranged and um uh the the john in the story the manager john tavril is kind of concerned because he knows that ace doesn't really have the the i don't know he doesn't have the same level of ferocity i guess is a good way to put it yeah and at one point uh john even asks him and ace answers that he 
that he can't. Uh, and John admits, he says, this was bad. A man is more than half whipped when he goes into a fight with that frame of mind, referencing Ace's statements. Uh, so it doesn't, it does not look good, but the fight has to go on. Like there's, there's no ducking out of this. Uh, but it's, it is a man who is a hell of a journeyman boxer and has done a great career and then there's this monster that is just like ripping things up, right? And so, so the things are going to play out, uh, and you can tell through the next few paragraphs within the story that Ace is is pretty torn apart in in the presence of 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 Mister Tom as he refers to the Molyneux painting, right? And so it's interesting we each each of us read this from a different source john you've got the boxing stories uh edited uh-huh. by chris gruber right uh i've got the del rey horror stories of robert e howard uh of which this story is a part and then i read it in the uh the ebook the delphi works of robert e howard that we that we use you know it's just as a sort of a big catch-all of a lot of different stories and so in the del rey um this story is actually titled the spirit of Tom Molyneux and not the apparition in the prize ring. Um, and so as Ace Jessel is preparing for the fight, as I mentioned, there are some scenes where he is kind of in communion with, uh, the, the painting of Tom Molyneux. And he basically says, I'm going to need help. Mighty bad, mighty bad, Mr. Tom. Uh, and as the manager kind of, thinks about Tom Molyneux and how Ace kind of views him as something of a, a legend, a saint uh, with skill that is just legendary. Uh, he notices that there's this strange flicker about the painting, right? And he sort of, there's this interesting paragraph and I, I want to just read this because this is something that I wanted to spend some time discussing here. Um, it says, Ace Jessel stood before the painted figure, head sunk upon his mighty chest as if listening to some dim whisper inside his own soul. And as I watched, a curious and fantastic thought came into my brain, the memory of an age-old superstition. You know it has been said by delvers into the occult that the carving of statues or the painting of pictures has power to draw back from the void of eternity souls long flown and to recreate them in shat- shadowy semblance. I wonder if Ace had ever heard of this superstition and thought by doing obeisance to Molyneux's portrait to conjure the dead man's spirit out of the realms of the dead for advice and aid. And so Tavril here is kind of, I guess he's heard some, some folklore, some old wives tales about using paintings as a a medium or as a way to conjure the spirits of the dead. And I wondered if you guys had ever encountered such a thing, such a literary device before. Not with a painting. We had Bran McMorn come back with the Dark Man statue. Right. Uh, yeah, there's psychic energy being imbued in a lot of different uh, different artifacts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Horcruxes. 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 Uh, John, you had a good one earlier. Uh, Vigo the Carpathian. From from Ghostbusters too, right? It's Vigo. Fine cinema. Scourge of Carpathia. <laughs> oh come on! Did you know that's a real guy, or no. not Vigo the Carpathian? But do you know the story of the guy in the painting 
I always just assumed it was, uh, I, I don't know what you mean. The, the painting is a, is a real model. Oh, and apparently he has an interesting story of his own. His name is Norbert group. And there's a whole story about him on Deadspin titled the hateful life and spiteful death of the man who was Vigo, the Carpathian. I think you would really enjoy it. Both of you on all of you listening with your ears, <laughs> with your ears. Um, cool. Um, what does he say? Uh, life is just a beginning. Death is but a door. I'll be back. Ghostbusters two is widely underrated. I'll just leave that there. It's good stuff, man. Cool. So there are I'll other take- literary examples of, uh, paintings or, or, uh, likenesses being used to conjure the spirits of the dead. Just wondering, I, I couldn't think of any as I was reading through, but, uh, luckily you guys educated me. What about Dorian Gray? Does that count? I guess that counts. Yeah. It's a little different, but, uh, I think Dorian Gray's, uh, vice, like the, the scars of his, his lifestyle are, are dealt upon the image in, in the painting. Right. Yeah. So not quite the same. Not quite, but sort of. We've set up this literary device. Keep it in the back of your mind as we move forward. Finally, the day comes for this catastrophic boxing match. There's there's reflection on the supernatural as, uh, aspect of the story, but but we get into a a fight that is spelled out in some good detail here. In, as as Howard is is you know uh, one to do, but the the fight itself is really a mixing of two different archetypes, right? Like we talked about, there's the, the sort of animalistic, just raging tiger, and then uh, the the fighter that is a bit more surgical and precise with with his attack. And Gomez is described as just being a, a mountain, right? Just a lump of muscles and, and sinew and fists. And, you know, his, his neck is thick. His, his head is, is like just, you know, he can take some punishment in this description. He, and it's interesting. Howard uses words like bestial, right? And savage to describe Mankiller Gomez. Yeah, he's he's going to be mean. He's going to be mean. <laughs> I couldn't help but picture Mr. T from Rocky three, but I think you're right. Mike Tyson is probably a better analog for man killer Gomez. So, so the fight is on and it doesn't start well or go well, really, for Ace Jessel for much of of its uh, continuation. Ace gets hit first. He does not give as good as he gets for the most part. And he is playing a long game. He's hoping to outpace Mankiller and make him tired. But John, he just doesn't know if if Ace has the distance in him to be able to do that because Mankiller doesn't seem to be slowing down at all. So it's a brutal match. There's a lot of cracks. There's a lot of blow, heavy blows against the head, the guts. There's a few times that Ace gets in a good shot or two. And surprises Mankiller, particularly one time where we get the the classic Howardian description of his head being on a hinge as it snaps back. And uh, he goes down for just a minute, or not a minute, for what, nine seconds, right? <laughs> well, he keeps getting knocked down and jumping back up and getting knocked down and jumping back up. Right. I couldn't help and, but think, why do we get 
Why do we get knocked down, Ace? So we get up again? So we can get ourselves up. You're never never gonna get me down? You were thinking Batman. I was thinking Chumbawamba. (laughs) (laughs) Never have those two been in a sentence together. (laughs) (laughs) He drinks a whiskey drink. He drinks a whiskey drink. He drinks more whiskey drinks. All the whiskey drink. You're drinking brandy now. (laughs) That's classy. I just classed it up. That's why you were thinking about uh, Chumbawamba. <laughs> Michael, Michael Caine should be here with us. <laughs> That's right. Mark he, would, he would fit in well with us. Uh, this <laughs> this description of the fourth round is, I think, some of the the I think some exemplary boxing riding from Howard. At the beginning of the fourth round, Gomez attacked. It drove Ace about the ring before a shower of blows, which he could not seem to wholly avoid. Stung and desperate, Ace made a stand in the neutral corner and sent Gomez back on his heels with a left and a right to the body, but took a savage left to the face in return. Then suddenly the champion crashed through with a deadly left to the solar plexus. And as Ace staggered, shot a killing right to the chin. Ace fell back into the ropes, instinctively raising his hands and sinking his chin into his chest. Gomez's short, fierce smashes were partly blocked by his shielding gloves, and suddenly, pinned on the ropes as he was, and still dazed from the man-killer's attack, Ace went into terrific action, and slugging toe-to-toe with the champion, beat him off and drove him back across the ring. Like, this is exciting. Very cinematic. Definitely, yeah. Uh, But as we said, Gomez is just landing fierce blow after fierce blow, and Ace, who ordinarily can... Uh, you know, rely on his footwork to get him out of these situations. It's not going so well for him. Yeah. So, so we get to the point where it's pretty clear that Ace isn't just going to be able to to make it work. He's a bloodied mess. Uh, at one point in between rounds, uh, Ace is speaking with the manager, and and it's clear that the the game the game is up. Uh, and we get to the point where Ace goes down. Right. Yeah. So many, many times, but this at this one juncture, it looks like the game is over. But luckily, Tavril has a uh, a cheat code, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So he pulls uh, the picture of Tom Molyneux. He says, "Before leaving the training rec- training quarters, I had removed the picture of Tom Molyneux from its frame, rolled it up carefully, and brought it to the stadium with me. I now took this, and as Ace's dazed eyes instinctively sought out his corner, I held the portrait up just outside of the flare of the ring lights, and uh, dot dot dot. As I live today, the picture in my hands shook suddenly and violently. Italicized." This is uh, this is the moment, right? This is where things are about to get spiritual. Very spiritual. Uh, we have, in short, Tom's uh, spirit coming to the aid of Ace Jessel. Ace finds his feet. Ace becomes uh, that that paragon of, of boxing prowess and just lays the smack down on the man killer and and takes him down. And nobody seems to notice the ghost of Tom Molyneux save uh, the manager who isn't quite sure what he sees, but there at the end uh, and he would be willing to write it off if not for another feller in the crowd who similarly saw a third fighter in the ring. It was the ref. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, was there a fourth man in that ring when Ace Jessel, Jessel dropped Gomez for a minute? I thought I saw him and he's just, he's convinced that he saw that there was this other guy in there. And these are the cold hard facts, says John, as he, as our narrator, told without any attempt to distort the truth or to mislead the leader. I leave the problem up to you. 
Was it Ace's numbed, Ace's numbed brain that created the hallucination of ghostly aid, or did the phantom of Tom Molyneux really stand beside him, as he believes to this day? As far as I am concerned, the old superstition is justified. I believe firmly today that a portrait is a door through which astral beings may pass back and forth between this world and the next, whatever the next world may be, and that a great unselfish love is strong enough to summon the spirits of the dead to the aid of the living. The end. Cue music. My story is different. That's that's Lay how mine ended. So uh, I have that old superstition is justified as far as I am concerned. Hereafter, I will not doubt that deep devotion coupled with the possession of a lifelike portrait can conjure back from the unknown voids of the astral world the soul or spirit or ghost which inhabited the living body of which the portrait is a likeness. A door, perhaps. A portrait is. through. Uh, sorry. A door, perhaps. A portrait is through which astral beings pass back and forth between this world and the next, whatever that world may be. But when I said no man save Ace Jessel and I saw the fourth man, I am not altogether correct. After the bout, the referee, a steely-nerved, cold-eyed son of the old-time school, said to me, Did you notice in that last round that a cold wind seemed to blow across the ring? Now tell me straight, am I going crazy, or did I see a dark shadow hovering about Ace Jessel when he dropped Gomez? You did, I answered, and unless we were all insane, the ghost of Tom Molyneux was in the ring that night. Interesting. Yeah, that's quite different from uh, the version that John and I have. Yeah. I think mine is supposed to be more closer to Howard's original manuscript, if I understand Gruber correctly. Okay. So he actually submitted this a few times before Ghost Stories accepted it, if I understand correctly. Okay. And had to, it did undergo some pretty substantial revision. But I just assumed that this version of the story was the same as you guys had. Never assume. <laughs> this isn't the first time this has happened. So, there's there's the story with the cool supernatural element thrown in there. Um, now, I guess, would be a good time to talk about what we thought of the story. And we had some, some issues to discuss that we brought up at the beginning of uh, the episode, before we even started recording. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is clearly... Uh, an awkward story for us to talk about just in terms of it being 2017 and the current, uh, 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 just climate that we live in the events that are going on all around us. Uh, issues of race don't seem to go away. It's not like we're living in a post-racial world, right? Like that's, I'm, <laughs> that's I, a I, myth. Of course not. Uh, uh, and, and this story, uh, while we gave, sort of a bare bones accounting for it, you know, there's a lot to, to, to unpack here. And so we're going to do our best. And, and as I mentioned earlier on, you know, bear in mind who we are. We, I think, I think we have some, some things that we all noted that would be, that would be worth talking about here, specifically sort of the, the timing and the, the couching of what this story is versus other stories and, you know, how, how to view those stories. But, but just generally, I'll just start things off. Like, I think this story is interesting in terms of talking about Howard and his racism in the voice that Ace has versus the voice that Sailor Steve has. And so Sailor Steve Costigan is never the, the brightest light bulb in the room, right? The way that he's portrayed 
throughout all of the stories that we've read today, and unless there's some dramatic shift in his presentation in the last the like the last two stories or whatever that we get to, and I bet there's not, but unless there's some dramatic shift, he is uh, a blundering doofus with a heart of gold, and at, at no point do you fail to uh, side with him and, and get behind that character and fully support him. The way that Ace is presented here, similarly, he is uh, a character with a heart of gold, but the voice and specifically the sort of like pigeon English, like the, the, the sort of slave talk that is delivered through Ace's mouth is different than the sort of backwoods, folksy, doofusy talk that we get from Sailor Steve. And this is not for the better. Like, I, I think that this tries too hard. It's caricaturish, and it doesn't, uh, doesn't paint Ace in as positive a light as what you see with, with Sailor Steve. And I think there's differences in the, the degree to which those characters are sort of like drawn up over multiple stories in the case of Sailor Steve versus this one. But on top of that, I think that there's more uh, care that's taken to uh, put the character of Sailor Steve together on the page than what's shown here for Ace. That was long-winded. No, no, I no. <laughs> I, I, it boils down to I don't like the way that Ace Jessel talks, and it's 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 uh, a, a tad bit ridiculous. It's not a tad bit. It's 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 over the top. And we we've seen Howard do this before um, in the character of Nalonga from the Solomon Kane stories, right? Um, even some of the uh, uh, other uh, you know Hispanic and. Um, Chinese characters. Yeah, the Asian characters bringing in various dog breeds right. to, to Sailor Steve in the last story, right? So, you know, this this is not something that is unique to the story by any stretch, nor is it something that is unique to this character. But it is something that sort of jumped out at me because in my mind, you know, I was kind of excited to read this story because I knew that Ace Jessel was one of Howard's few black protagonists. And so I thought it, you know, was going to be cool to read Howard's presentation of this character, given that, you know, in the, when did this come out? 1929. Right. Uh, it was a, a different time, but as you pointed out, given the recent events in our country, maybe it really wasn't quite as different, but I think that, that, uh, probably casual, racism was more commonplace maybe i don't know um so this is certainly something that um uh, the the way that ace jessel talks something we've seen before um and you know i I, regardless of how the story turned out which not to dog it it is a good story i think i think it's a, a a good story and worth reading but um i guess the, the fact that Howard attempted to write a story with a black protagonist during this time, I think that says something, maybe. I, I don't know. I, th- I think that what maybe goes against my grain, and Luke, chime in if this rings true with you, perhaps, is that, so Sailor Steve talks funny. Breck Elkins talks funny in that Texan dialect that, that Howard writes really well. But we're also getting the story from their viewpoint. Mm-hmm. 
and we're not doing that with Ace Jessel. The story is told by the white trainer. That's true. So if it was told, I, I would, would you have forgiven the way he spoke if we were first person with Ace rather than with his trainer? Yeah, and I don't think he would be portrayed as such. Because I think if Howard would have had to have drill into Ace Jessel's head, it wouldn't have been presented in such a uh, uh, caricaturist way. Yeah. I wonder how the story would have been received then had Howard, a white man, written this character uh, from the character's point of view. Well, I don't think it would have sold. Like, I'm not super well versed in the boxing stories but like that I don't, I don't i don't know offhand like i don't know if that's i don't know if that's true but but having like the voice of a black protagonist actually be central for the story as opposed to being told through the mouth of the the, the white like manager manager which <laughs> there's some relationship there between manager and in any other you know level of white person being over a black person the way it's presented like i think that i think that's part of it uh but i don't know if the story would have been i i can't see that it would have been as i I don't know if it would have been published but i I don't think it would have been as well received i don't i don't think so the we have you know complicated views on the story um the vernacular is is kind of off-putting I think th- so I think that the the plot of the story is fine and I think the cool factor for me of the story is the overlap between the boxing and the ghost elements but this story is not as 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 <laughs> as deep as some of the Costigan stories <laughs> that we've read <laughs> which is like ridiculous to say but there's really not as much like there's not as many characters like all we're presented with here is the white manager, uh, a black boxer with a heart of gold, uh, a black boxer that's like the, the the King Arthur to aspire to, or some you know some some uh, aspirational hero, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, the the black antagonist. Like those are really the only characters in this story, mm-hmm. and so it's very broad brushstrokes. But I feel like we could have gotten more out of any of those characters in in a longer story of course but i think with there's just more nuances merited and that's you could say that about a lot of stories from the 20s and 30s but i mean there are a lot of other stories we've read over the course of this multiple year podcast series where uh howard has gone into greater nuance in the same amount of of writing space Mm -hmm. and you know, you have to wonder how challenging this might have been for him to write. I mean, it's it is a fact that Robert E. Howard was a racist. And that's something that you maybe uh, as a reader might grapple with or it might not bother you at all. But either way, you know, the the guy had some pretty, uh, uh, you know, from my viewpoint, and I think I speak for all three of us. So it's a pretty unsavory viewpoints about other uh, races and ethnic groups. Yeah. I mean, he did like it's if, yeah, if, if you don't think he did, then you need to read more of his work, you know, like, uh, 
it's there and that it's not excusable and it's something to be reckoned with and it's not to detract from the qualities of this story but this story i think uh suffers because of that of that racist streak yeah thoughts john it's it's just it's hard to it's hard to grapple with not just racism but i mean we're talking about a story with uh, like you said josh a black main character but even for all that merit it, it he isn't the 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 narrator right and he is not presented very sympathetically so you want to give Howard some credit, but then you also sort of have to say, well, C plus, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Uh, <laughs> right. C plus on accepting other human beings. <laughs> and so it's, it's challenging because I think we three like Howard, like, you know, we've spent the last four years with Robert E. Howard and for all his, you know, character, uh, eccentric, the eccentricities for all his uh, flaws, for all his uh, good qualities. Um, you know, uh, when you when you really delve into somebody's work and try to unite the the art with the artist, you you might find some really unsavory things about that person. And I think you have to sort of tackle the whole thing if you're gonna. You know, I wrote a blog post about separating the the art from the artist and looking at the soup the soup of the, the artist's work um, and appreciating the soup without looking at the bones that the stock was made from, right? Uh, but if you start evaluating those bones, you have to evaluate the, the good things and the bad things about those bones and how the soup was made. And in this case, Howard's view on life influenced the story in a way that, you know, not just from the the presentation of race but the quality of the writing like we just we just kind of are not all that thrilled with the story is what i gather yeah i mean there's there's uh a variety of works and the clear touchstone for this kind of conversation would be something like huck finn which we mentioned before we started recording is something that we could that we could mention clearly uh, Huck Finn is a book that has a long history with censorship and with discussions of race, and that book is widely lauded as literature for lots of good reasons. This story, while it's far shorter, right, would never be able to compete with, say, Huck Finn as a, as a literary work, just on the sheer volume of material, but also in terms of, like, my how I interpret the, 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 the scope and the intent, like my, my interpretation of, of what Howard meant to say with this story versus like what, what Twain meant to say with like, say something like Huck Finn. Those are, those are different. And this is a pulpier presentation of a story Mm -hmm. intentionally. So given the market and, and given Howard's, you know, writing just generally at this point in his life. Uh, and because of that, it's an inferior work. Uh, but there are good things to talk about. And again, like in terms of genre and what it does, 
it's something just to to reckon with. I don't know. We we have a handful of different sort of comparisons. I mean, I think we can talk about this story in its time and place versus current day political climate or even just like the world in the modern era, sort of like post <laughs> world wars and social revolution of the 60s and the 70s. Race is different. Uh and the sort of market that the story comes out with, but how are the other ways that we can contrast the story and, and sort of interpret it? Well, I wanted to speak a little bit. I mean, intent and purpose is always important to remember when you're talking about the bones, like Josh has mentioned. And I find it difficult to believe that Howard's intent was to present a sympathetic portrayal of a black boxer in late 19 or late 1800s, early 1900s boxing championship bouts right i right i don't think that was the case i think he was writing about black boxers because black boxers were winning a lot at the time perhaps we, we have jack johnson and and others of, of the era that were becoming champions so it i just think he was writing what he saw not necessarily from a place of well they're also great and i want to write about it yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No, it does. It does. And something else that, that we can talk about here, too, is the the tropes that accompany African-American culture. We've talked about Pigeons from Hell previously. We've talked about Nalonga within the Solomon Cain stories. We've talked about the magical Negro trope as, mm-hmm. a, as a thing. Like, there's a connection, I think. Like, if you're going to talk about Howard and his work, you're going to talk about... Uh, uh, dissecting the merits of civilization versus barbarism barbarism you're going to talk about racial differences and long and storied histories and howard has in many stories discussed concepts of racial memory and and histories of people and it's to me it's no surprise that in this story we have a black man that's highly in tune to the spiritual psychic energies of, of an elder generation of black men that make him a better warrior. Like that is part and parcel <laughs> with that racial memory kind of, uh, uh, trope. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, thinking back to pigeons from hell, I think the, the racial memory, uh, of the, uh, voodoo priests, right. Is, is sort of, central to that story. It's, yeah. it, and so there's definitely a through line there, not just with Howard's work, but you know, at the time, uh, some misconceptions about evolution were that some groups of animals and people, uh, were climbing the evolutionary ladder while others were descending back into barbarism or back into animalism or, or, uh, bestiality. Um, and so, you know, it, it, that misconception certainly if you believed that could feed some really uh unsavory viewpoints about different races right like uh we are climbing they are descending and if you look at howard's writing he clearly if he didn't buy into it at least it informed his writing right um and maybe even his worldview about you know different uh, groups of people and where they were on that evolutionary ladder. Um, and so if you look at these characters, Ace Jessel is American, right? Presumably born in America, 
whereas Mankiller Gomez is Senegalese, right? right? Um, and so you can sort of see in the descriptions of these two men that sort of uh, evolutionary viewpoint. Viewpoint. Yeah, and there's the the sort of hierarchical, like there's differences in how Howard presented various African races too. Like that's something that uh, that he's mentioned in other stories that we've discussed. I think like with with references to sort of like uh, Egyptian or or Nile centric African cultures, they they tend to be more similar to uh, to the, the the European races, right? Or at right. least like the the Euro Asiatic races. And so there's there's that that continuum of civilized versus barbaric and uh, advanced versus primitive, which is not, you know, not the correct nomenclature in terms of science. Like <laughs> that's not how we think about phylogenetic relationships, much less, you know, uh, like the, the, the situational, like societies. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, so I don't know. It's was, do you think he was uh, more connected with this, with his Irish fascination where, whereas at this time Irish people were considered like the, the lowest white people. Right. Am right. I correct? in remembering my eugenics, <laughs> your eugenics, I think you're right. Um, and you know, you could go even deeper into this and point out examples of Howard looking at even white society and saying, these people are unsavory because X, Y, and Z. Right. Uh, Howard wasn't a fan of of uh, Adolf Hitler and his rise, um, whereas his pen pal H.P. Lovecraft in some of the letters that they sent back and forth kind of was like, you know, maybe Hitler's not all that bad. Um, whereas Howard kind of roundly downed the the rise of the the National Socialist Party in Germany. Is that so there's like that's that correspondence is documented. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. So so, you know. Uh, to, I don't know, this conversation maybe is a little, is, I don't want to, I don't want to sidetrack us too much, but we're already out of our depth. So <laughs> certainly, yeah, we're not socialists, but, uh, social, social, socialists. <laughs> what am I trying to say? Social scientists, social scientists by any stretch of the imagination, three biologists, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it, I, I guess the point that I want to make is that like anyone, Howard was complex and yes, he was a racist. And there's there's no defense for that, right? None, yeah, yeah. None needed. You, none. There, there's no reason to be apologetic about those facts. And there's no problem or no issue. Like, there is nothing wrong with us discussing this. If, if, if you know, <laughs> if our discussion of race related to Howard's writing at this point in time over the history of this podcast is, is boring or belaboring to, to any listener. That's, I don't know, like that's on them as far as I'm concerned, because this is something that continues to be relevant. Again, given that Howard wrote all the time, a central through line for his work is that civilization versus barbarism, long and storied histories, the rise and fall of civilizations and the, 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 the big broad schemes of of different types of people over millennia it's something that he wrote about and he 
wrote about race and he was racist. And so it's something that will continue to come up. And there's, it's, it, it is something you have to, to think about. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy Howard's writing, you know, and right. I, I, I don't know why may, I, I feel maybe compelled. Maybe mean that. Well, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's up to each individual person that, that encounters this, this canon. Right. I mean, you, you can either grapple with it and struggle with it every time you read it, mm-hmm. or you can just write them off, I guess. I, I would hope people would be more willing to try and look at some of the the additions he made to literature and some of the good things, but keep in the back of your mind that I mean we do it with Lovecraft a lot. I feel like right, right, yeah. I mean we've had this discussion before ad infinitum, I'm sure. But <laughs> I mean the entire sort of uh, horror uh, science fiction fantasy community at large has continued to talk about Lovecraft and racism, and we're in like a a, a Lovecraft fiction revival with a variety of of inversions and 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 takes on on Lovecraft's work, and of course the the World Fantasy Award type, right? The the the, tro- the you know the award. People continue to talk about this. If you're in the camp that you think that this is something that we don't need to talk about it, we just need to get past it. That's cool. If you if you think that way, I don't know if that's cool. I don't agree. I don't think that's cool. Actually, <laughs> if that's the way you feel, that's your prerogative. But uh, but you can't poo poo on the the necessity of dealing with something so serious as this issue and the severity to which it comes up across all of the writing of these of these these writers. Like it's not just a passing thing in Lovecraft or Howard's work. It is a central through line across a variety of stories and it's got to be reckoned with. Yeah. Because forgetting it or ignoring it or trying to, like you said, move past it is, is a blanching, a whitewashing of the whole thing because if we don't discuss it, we can't move past it Yeah, as a culture. And in the cases of those two specific authors, you can't move past it. Like the, no, given the context and the content of, of stories, you, you, you can't move past it. I mean, you can just like set aside a subset of those works mm-hmm. and just not want to read them. And that's cool too. Or you can say, Oh, well sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, which that isn't, that is, that's willful, willful ignorance. <laughs> like right. if, if you, if you take that perspective, uh, given what you know about that story, like history tells you otherwise. Uh, so, so reckon with it. That that and that is an important thing culturally that we don't think about or do very often. I don't think. I mean, if you really want to get way down the the rabbit patch here, I mean, think of Thomas Jefferson. We don't. We have this whole monument to him, and nowhere in the monument is it really reckoned with that a man who wrote the Declaration of Independence and about freedom so eloquently owned other people and. We just forget about it and say, let's let's talk about the great things. Let's talk about the good things, so we don't work through the issue of race in America, which we're not going to fix tonight on the Chromecast. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, was, that was on my list as a to, uh, on the to do list. Man, I had lines through all of the other stuff except for that. except for that. Right? <laughs> Damn. Yeah, that was it's, next. It just it's always bothered me that we're not willing as a people to 
to reckon with that kind of stuff. So we do so much mythologizing of cultural figures like Jefferson and to a lesser extent, obviously, Howard and Lovecraft. We lionize these people. We weave them into our identities. And therefore, admitting their racism is almost tantamount to admitting your racism. Right. it's it's hard for people to to do that because none of us want to be racist or not not most of us don't want to be racist right you, you uh, need to, you need to you need to think about inborn inherent bias yeah. uh, you know that word privilege like you need to think about all of those things that inform how you see the world and it, <laughs> you you just have like that's that's part of this if if not just be just say, well, I don't want to read it. But in that case, like you're 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 not facing up to the to the grown up aspects of what you're reading. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I think that again, you can you can there are many modes of thought about this, and you can enjoy Howard's stories without engaging in this type of discussion. Right? You you could read this and go, okay, this is a product of its time. And Howard was a writer and he sold a story and this is what it's about and not dive any deeper specifically to this story. Do you think I, I think probably you could say about any story, uh, uh, whether it is legitimate to do so or not, that is just a product of its time. Mm-hmm. And that's a story I read. You could do it with Lovecraft if you wanted um, if you didn't know anything about Lovecraft's per, like actual viewpoints about things, you you could look at the shadow over Innsmouth and say, okay, that's a story about these fish people who are gonna, you know, they're 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 creating these hybrids and they're gonna take over the world. Or you can look at it as kind of a xenophobic view of how minorities maybe, um, or at least from Lovecraft's viewpoint, are. Uh, uh, sort of infiltrating our our culture, right? So, so let's compare. And can we can we spend a second and like let's compare and contrast that though? Because sure. like because like in that case, so in uh, the Innsmouth story, I think you can read that story, and it's kind of. I mean, it's there. the The comparisons to the real world and the xenoph- xenoph- xenophobic uh feel of the story is there but the direct connection between that story and the real world is something that has to be uh the connection's not as obvious to the uh poor depiction of the black character Ace Jessel in this story I feel like Right, sure. Yeah. So, so it, inherently, like if someone, if they're over the age, uh, of if they're t- if they're teenage or older, and they were to read the apparition in the ring to this day, like right now, I would, I would hope that that person would be able to acknowledge the issues in that story, like the the complications of of how characters are depicted in that story. And in contrast, if you were if you were if you were the same fifteen year old and you read the Apparition in the Ring and the horror over Dinsmith or Innsmouth, the Shadow over the Innsmouth, Innsmouth, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm getting my, <laughs> my the, the horror uh, Red Hook, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Shadow over Innsmouth. If you read that story and you are fifteen 
and you don't make those connections and see the racial elements that 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 Lovecraft was was commenting on there. I I give you like I, I can I can see where that would be overlooked. That's a fifteen year old. Sure. If you're thirty, it's it's a harder uh, argument to make, especially given that you have Wikipedia and you probably have some passing knowledge of of those authors sort of worldviews in this time and place because people are reading lovecraft all the time and sure. of course it's lovecraft rah, 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 all everywhere <laughs> and until you know howard and pulps and this is this is the zeitgeist you know we're we're in that golden age of this stuff coming around i don't know i i don't this story i don't think is as sophisticated as uh the innsmouth story and because of that I don't think it's as I don't excusable is not the right word, uh, but it's the complications are aren't laid bare the way they are in the Ace Jessel story. I'll, I'll grant you that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So which is worse, sneaky racism or upfront racism? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, because we see people all the time that know the right things to say to not get in too much trouble, but are pushing racist thoughts right or homophobic thoughts or what have you yeah so as far as well, which which is worse you know um maybe worse isn't the right i don't way. know how you can measure that but i i think that racism <laughs> i think that there's a way in which you can read the shadow over insmith and go oh it's about fish people and there's another way you can read and, the shadow over insmith and go this is this is kind of a weird like statement on how Lovecraft feels about, you know, foreign people coming into town. But you can also read that story and just think about the scariness of the other, like the, with capital O like, and that's, that's a, that's a, a, a major theme of Lovecraft's work all, all over. Like that big picture horror theme is something that he, addressed throughout his body of work and it's not as like i think it's it comes down to the at least in this story talking about this ace jessel ace jessel story it's the caricature depiction of of ace as the major issue because otherwise howard presents that character in a in a positive fashion like we he is a he's a character with a heart of gold he has uh he's he's heroic by by any definition of the word. Like he goes into the fight knowing in his heart of hearts that he's going to lose, but yet he's still going to do his damnedest. He's, he's courageous. Yeah. He is a, he's a hero. Yeah. And he's just depicted in, uh, a, he's a, he's depicted in a subpar way because Howard views him as subpar. I think like that's, that's the way, I guess I'll, I'll explain it. That was yeah. <laughs> just off and, the cuff. I don't know if that sounds like, I, I guess I think that's, I think that's right. And that's, that's what I was trying to get at earlier with, uh, when I said that Howard's worldview kind of is informing these, these stories consciously or unconsciously, you know, if, if you really do believe that different societies evolve or devolve and, 
uh, we we don't share a common ancestry, right? Like there are just these distinct differences and some of us are bestial and some of us have these savage qualities and some of us are able to exist in societies and, and you know, not, uh, not break the rules of society, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, then whether you want to or not, some of those viewpoints might leak into your writing, might inform those things. And so he doesn't deliberately write Ace Jessel as a bad character or a, um, you know, undesirable character or anything like that. I think he does his best to present Ace as a courageous hero, as you said, but because that inherent bias is there, we get this kind of, I don't know, the word I keep thinking of is diffracted, like this weird kind of reflection of this caricature of heroism. Like Ace Jessel is not Conan. Ace Jessel is also not Sailor Steve Costigan. He's not Solomon Kane. Those characters are have an inherent nobility. They're strong. They're brave. They're capable. Ace Jessel doesn't win on his own, even, right? Uh, that's, that's a good point that we haven't even addressed here, that outside but, of the, the white savior, like, showing him the, the, the face of his father. Right. <laughs> what, let what let me remind you who you are. That sort of thing. That, that's something that he, he does a lot, though. I mean, Conan gets saved by Belit's ghost, and okay. I mean, I, I, I guess I slightly disagree. I think he presents Jessel as noble, strong, bold, brave. I mean, he can't, he can't overcome his heritage as a white guy in the South in the twenties to write him in an erudite way, but still imbues upon the man character traits that, that Howard always finds admirable, indomitable will bravery in the face of danger, that kind of stuff. But he can't, like you said, he can't overcome his own internal biases about the way he thinks black people sound to write him in a less pigeon way. Well said, man. Yeah. So, there's meat and potatoes for all of these stories. <laughs> and, and you can eat that meat and potatoes. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I am resistant to the, to the notion, if anybody wants to offer the argument that, oh, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. You can read the story. You can just take it as, as a fun romp. I know, like Josh, I feel like you you feel that a bit more strongly than I do. I think it's really hard to do that in this day and age. Uh, well, I don't. And what I was trying to say is that you could, I could see a situation in which somebody could read this and go, "Oh, well, this is just a story and it's a product of its time." And he presented these people this way. I, I myself, my personal thoughts about the story. Um, I enjoyed the boxing writing. Yeah, I, I thought that some of the fight scenes, especially that fourth round paragraph, were just top notch. Um, I thought it was neat the way he wove the, uh, supernatural element into it. Even if it was a little ham fisted, it, you know, it's a pulp story. Don't think about it too much. Um, well, when I say, when I say that, I don't mean that my, like, 
you guys like Jurassic World, and I and I have at length like made comments about like like it's just hard for me to to be to just go along for the ride, and that's, that's a shortcoming yeah. okay. of me. Yeah, and so when I say that, I mean that oftentimes I have problems seeing like the 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 glaring like the hairy mole on the side. <laughs> I got you. I, I, the side of the bicep. I'm like. I see what you're saying now. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and so that's like, but I just it just if reading these stories, like in the Del Rey collections, there are there's a there's context provided in that reading, right, or mm-hmm. in that in that story, and like even within the Delphi works, like like that is a truncated two dollar three dollar ebook there's context provided throughout that document like you have to you would have to gloss over it to miss it and and you could say well i did but that doesn't excuse a lack of information about the context of when these stories are written sure i don't know i feel like that would probably get some flack too (laughs) from some listeners but that's fine like that's really how i feel like if you're gonna read stories you should be educated about like people should be educated so if you're going to read material be prepared to do a little bit of like thinking and digesting of what it means but also think about when it the the time and place the context right mm-hmm. <laughs> rant 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 i'm sorry i'm no, i feel no. like i'm just rambling here no no i think i think that's fine but i think we should probably bring the discussion to a close uh it looks like we've covered all of the things on the list except that one thing that we're gonna have to save for another time <laughs> Right, John. So, so final thoughts, like just, uh, uh, you know, a couple minutes to wrap things up and then we'll look ahead to what's coming up next on the podcast. John, you want to lead us off? I think Luke synthesized it pretty well about grapple with your favorite authors and their long held personal beliefs. Don't just overlook them, read their work, but also think about where they were coming from in the time and place that they wrote it to better understand their intent that the story presents of them. Because if you don't, you're not getting a very holistic view of, of what you're reading. So I I think that's a good synthesis. It's a, it's a good boxing story that we all seem to have some issues with. (laughs) I I agree. I, I am not sad. We read this story. Uh, actually I I think we had a good discussion about it and, uh, there are some some cool things about this story, but I certainly would not rate it amongst my top five for this season. No, it's 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 bare, and it doesn't necessarily have like some of the other threadbare stories that we've read within this season have had the humor that just sort of like rolls it along. It's like that Three Stooges episode. That, that we reference you know like there's there's that sort of like role to it this is given in a more like i'm gonna relay a ghost story to you fashion which makes it interesting but also doesn't do anything to to add extra layers that might complicate it or make it at least interesting from like extra avenue like other other sort of ways of interpreting the story at least as far as my like how i've how i've read it this one time over uh but I do like a haunted painting <laughs> and that's cool. And I, I do appreciate the, the blending of a historical figure within the context of the story. And 
I mean, from what John's described, I'm going to go check out that Dollop podcast, and that sounds like a great, a great discussion of of boxing as a as a as an industry and as a as a mythology, right? Mm-hmm. So I, think- I, I hope I didn't build it up too much for you because I I don't know how much you'll like the Dollop. I don't know if you've listened to it. Luke, I haven't listened but- to it at all. No, it's something I bookmarked, but I need to. Uh, no, I was just gonna. I was gonna say like you. You saying that about boxing as a mythology made me think like Howard really put a lot of these boxers up on a pedestal. So this this story could be viewed as as an expression of that, right? Yeah. But you wouldn't know that again if you didn't understand the context of the author. Where do we go from here, Luke? Uh, next up, where we are in the home stretch. Uh, as far as Costigan stories, looking ahead, we have a couple more. We've got Vikings of the Gloves, in which Costigan battles a Swede. That was published in 1932. And then to round it out, as far as Costigan stories, we have Sluggers on the Beach, which is the last published Costigan story in 1934. So, so we're coming into the to the home stretch pretty soon. We'll make an announcement as far as what our what our next season, our next content load will be. Yeah, expect that. Yeah, we're coming to a crossroads. I mean, I don't know. I, I've kind of had fun on this road. Yeah, I've enjoyed it too. John, thank you for putting the season together, man. Welcome. Thank you for letting me. <laughs> you should again. <laughs> uh, and so we've got the Vikings of the Gloves coming up. Um, but until such time as we meet again to discuss... The Pulp Writings of Robert E. Howard. You can find us on the web at thecromcast.blogspot.com. You can also email us, thecromcast at gmail.com. You can call us, 859-429-CROM, and leave your voicemail. Tell us what you think about the story, about the podcast, where you want it to go from here. Uh, give us some some cool tips for using uh, your laptop in a more efficient way that saves battery, because... Damn, my battery dies like crazy. Um, you can find us on Twitter at the Chromecast, and we're on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash the Chromecast. And you can listen to us on Google Play, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, wherever you get your podcasts. We are there. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Sorry for rambles, but this was fun. And hopefully you, uh, you take this recording as it was meant and it caused you to, to have a little bit of a think. I don't know. Maybe that's <laughs> ascribing a little bit too much to us. But if you've less listened to this point in the show, you're probably thinking about this stuff. I would I would speculate. Yeah, you're probably our friend. Thank you all. We will talk to you later on down. Bye bye.